Good evening, friends. Welcome to Mosaic. We're glad you're here. And if you're joining us online this evening, a special welcome to you. We'll be taking communion tonight as part of our worship celebration, and you should have picked up a communion pack at the uh, rear of the worship center here. If you have, if you didn't, now's a good time just to work your way back and make sure you have it at the appropriate time later this evening. And then for you who are online, uh, now would be a good time to uh, get your elements there in your home, and that way we can all do this together in about 45, 50 minutes. We're back into our service of our, or our study of the Lord's Prayer, taking a look this evening at daily bread and the need we all have for Christ and who He is, both living and written, active, and all that He is by way of the Word of God. And as we open up tonight, I thought I'd read to you a brief prayer from the uh, Valley of Vision, which is a Puritan collection of prayers. And this prayer is titled, God, the Source of All Good. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you inhabit all eternity. The heavens declare your glory, the earth your riches, the universe is your temple, and your presence fills it all. Yet you have found great pleasure in creating life, in creating us, and have communicated unto us happiness. You have made us what we are and given us what we have. In you, we live and move and have our being. Your provision, your providence has set the bounds of our habitation and he wisely administers all our affairs. So we thank you for the riches tonight that we have in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of him in your word, that we may behold his person, his character, his grace, his glory, his humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Give to us this night, O Lord, the need the desire, the hunger for a continual sense of your presence. Amen. Would you stand with us tonight? The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. A good friend of mine challenged me this week with a phrase that has meant a lot in his life. Um, as I confessed to him, uh, just praying often for clarity, for God to give me clarity in different areas of life, decisions and things like that. And he encouraged me with something that he's walked with for a long time. And um, 
the phrase connection over clarity. And that really resonated with me this week, and that's why we're here in this place and here on this earth as followers of our Father. He desires for us connection with Him, right? And so if you're anything like me and you're often searching for your way, um, let's put that on His shoulders tonight. Let's press into Him in connection tonight. Connect with Him at a heart level tonight. And let's sing together.
truth tonight with a whole heart and gratitude. Thank you for what you've done and the place that you have secured for us, your beloved children. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. When you wish upon a star, the thing that you wish will come true. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. No matter what your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. Starlight, star bright, First star I see tonight, I wish I may, I wish I might get the wish I wish tonight. I grew up a child of Disney, like just infused with wish fulfillment theology, convinced that the only thing it took to make my dreams and my wishes and desires come true was strong enough belief and a really bright star. And I can actually remember with like such concrete clarity being five years old, sitting in my front yard one summer night in 1991 in Conway. Terminator 2 had just come out. It was all the rage. Now the Terminator movies are pretty intense radar movies, so I know no one in here has seen it. So I'll just tell you a little bit about it. Um, you see, in the first Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger's the bad guy, but in the second one, plot spoiler, he comes back as the good guy, and there's a new Terminator on the scene, the T-1000, okay? And the T-1000 did this really cool thing where it could, like, liquefy and reform, and I had the Arnold ter Terminator toy, but I didn't have the T-1000. And they had come out with a T-1000, and I don't know if, what exactly it did, if it was Play-Doh or what, how they did it, but I just remember watching the commercial, and you could reform his arm into all these different shapes. It was the coolest toy in the world, and I needed one. And I can remember with utter conviction 
at five years old, sitting on the, that, the lawn that summer night, watching the sunset, waiting, because I don't know how I got this idea, but from that little rhyme, I thought you had to say the rhyme when there was only one star visible in the sky. So I watched the sky trying to catch the first star. And as soon as I saw it, I said the little rhyme, starlight, star bright, wishing with all conviction, believing with all my might that I would find the T-1000 in my bedroom when I ran upstairs. And I ran upstairs to find my faith crushed. Is that how prayer works? Find that wish in your heart, that thing you want most dearly, and believe for it with strong enough conviction and you will make it come true. Now, prayer is tied to faith, absolutely. But one of the things we're gonna see tonight in this, this series that we've been walking through that I think is so helpful because the Lord's Prayer, that when, when Jesus taught us to pray, puts the entire idea of prayer and talking to God in the context of the kingdom, in, in understanding God as both Father and King. In fact, I think it's so fascinating. I hear so much teaching on prayer and shockingly little of it pays attention to Jesus's answer when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Here we have Jesus putting the entire concept of prayer into the right perspective for us. And tonight in our Lord's prayer, we come to this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. We've prayed that the kingdom would come, that God's name would be cherished, that his will would be done, and now it's time to ask for ourselves. Now it's time to say, Lord, give us what we need. And I'm convinced, and while there, there would be lots of good reasons to spiritualize this concept of bread, I really think that bread means bread in this context, that this is the time that we're praying, God, we need to eat. Will you take care of us? I'll show you why when we go a little bit further down in context. So the question we're gonna have to wrestle with is how does this concept of going to God for the things that we need fit into the bigger picture of the kingdom of God? What happens when you go to God as both a father who loves you and wants to provide for you and a sovereign king that is putting the world to rights with his order? How do those two go together, and how does that frame how we understand talking to God about things? That's the question we're gonna wrestle with. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter six. God, we love you, and Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to bring our needs to you in a way that reflects that we know your heart as Father, and we respect your sovereignty as King. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might ask, how do I come to the conclusion that when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he's talking about daily needs and not something else? Here's a great rule for Bible's reading. Um, one New Testament professor said this. He was known as one of the hardest professors at a seminary. And he said, if you ever fall asleep in my class, which apparently was a common phenomenon, and you realize that I've called on you and you've been asleep, just look up and say the word context and you've got about a 50% chance of being right. 
Context is always going to be the clue to understand what somebody's talking about. And interestingly, in the context of Matthew chapter 6, right after Jesus teaches us to pray to him for our daily food, he then gives a teaching on how to approach our need for basic material things. Take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Just a little ways after the Lord's Prayer, he says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, when you get a question like that, it's meant to be a rhetorical question where the answer is obvious. Isn't life more than, than food or clothes? Um, to somebody going without food or clothing, they might go, um, no. Right now, I really need to eat. Life doesn't seem like much more than getting my next meal. Jesus seems to imply by this question that it should be obvious that life is about something bigger than even get your, getting your most basic material needs met. So he's gonna unpack that. He's gonna say you're gonna need a shift in perspective. And so he's gonna give a couple of examples running along these two material needs that he picks on here, food and clothing. First, in verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Okay, again, rhetorical question where the answer is supposed to be obvious. But let's have a, a moment of honesty. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God values you personally more than the birds of the sky? You see, the, the, everything that Jesus is going to teach here assumes the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father. None of this makes sense if you don't understand the heart of God as Father. That's his starting point, is the assumption that God cares about you. That the person who rules the universe cares about you. If, if you don't have that as a foundation, none of this teaching is going to make sense. So Jesus says, are you not more valuable? He says it in such a way that we could just turn it into a statement. You are more valuable than birds. And God has provided food for them. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Okay, let's talk about worry for just a second. This is not primarily a sermon about worrying. I really want to focus on the prayer aspect. But we can't ignore the worrying piece here. Um, because as someone who has the spiritual gift of worry and anxiety, um, these passages freak me out. How ironic is that? Okay, and so they cause a lot of anxiety in me because here I have Jesus telling me I shouldn't worry. Now, you, know, you wanna know the one way to get someone who's anxious to become more anxious? Tell them it's a sin to be anxious. It's, a, it's guaranteed fuel on the fire. Okay, what we have to distinguish here, and I think this is true of all emotion language in the Bible. We have to distinguish between the feeling and the response to that feeling. Feelings simply are. 
to feel the experience of fear, anxiety, sadness, joy. They, those just come when they come based on the things you're going, going through and you cannot control those feelings. They're gonna happen. In fact, trying to control them is often more damage than anything else you can do. What we do have control over is how we respond to what we feel. Jesus is here speaking against the act of worrying. It is the act of trying to stew and figure out how am I gonna solve my problems that I'm facing on my own, that I have to figure all of this out in my head, I have to do damage control before the bad thing even happens. You see, for, for most anxious people like myself, when actual terrible things happen, we respond pretty calmly because we've already lived like 100 worst case scenarios that week in our mind. And so it's this, this act of going, I have to live my life preemptively doing damage control before anything bad happens so that I can prevent something bad from ever happening. That is the process that Jesus is telling us not to engage in. He's actually teaching us what to do when we feel that feeling of concern, of anxiety. And he's giving us a perspective to have as we approach it. He says, look, Worrying is not gonna add a day to your life. Actually, medical science and people who study such things smarter than me will tell you it probably has the opposite effect. So then he moves on to a different example. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So, don't worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all those things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Okay, now, is Jesus saying here that having material needs met is not important? That it doesn't matter? That you should take no steps to meet the material needs in your life? Not at all. He says not to worry. This is the counter. This is the other side of the coin to what he instructed us to. He is unpacking, I think, the give us this day our daily bread prayer. That in the prayer, God moves from the perspective that we need to embrace. Our Father is in heaven, whose name is to be cherished, and his kingdom will come and his will will be done. And under that banner of a Father who loves us and a King who rules, that is the context for approaching our material needs. Now, what counts as a material need? Uh, this is actually a, a relatively important question to ask in America, because I think we may have lost complete perspective on what this is. When, when we think I have to have a pool because summer during COVID is crazy and I need it, we may have lost perspective. Does that mean getting a pool during COVID summer is wrong? No, not at all. That's wonderful. If God blesses you with a pool, that's fantastic. Probably not a need. 
We have to learn the difference between needs and wants. And I really think that in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see God, the Father, provide for every human need right there in the garden. What did God give? Right there, he provides food. He provides shelter by giving them a safe place to live. He provides work. Now, this is really interesting. I'm convinced that meaningful work is actually a need that humans have. We need to be able to do something useful with our lives. We are not made to do nothing. So God actually provides that for us right there in the garden. But alongside work, he also provides rest, balance, and rhythm to our lives. Meaningful work and meaningful rest. And then as a result of the fall and the shame of nakedness, he provided clothing. And I think we can reasonably, in light of the rest of the scripture, add care for the sick to this list. Sickness hadn't crept in yet in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But quickly we're going to see that if somebody is sick and dying, that is a material need that needs to be cared for. I think when we survey scripture, when we look at the things that humans need at a basic level to thrive and survive, this list does a pretty good job of covering it. And I'm convinced that God shows in Genesis at the very beginning of the story, he wants to provide it for us. It's part of his basic design. Now, what I didn't include on this list is our spiritual, emotional, relational needs. Primarily because I think Jesus is gonna address that in the next part of the prayer when he talks about restoring relationship with ourselves between ourselves and God and restoring relationship between ourselves and others. So I think he's gonna turn to the emotional, spiritual, relational next. Tonight, the focus is really on these material needs. And Jesus does not dismiss that these are needs. He says, in fact, your father knows you need them. He's fully aware you need these things. Now, if these are needs essential to living life, and God knows that we need them, like you go without this list for a very short amount of time and you're dead. That's kind of a big deal. So how can Jesus tell you not to worry, not to run after them like pagans do? I think that word run after is the key word there. Because look at what Jesus says right after he tells you not to run after these things, he says in contrast in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now you can't see this in English translation, but the root between that, uh, of that word run after in verse 32 and the word seek in 33 is the same Greek root. So they are being contrasted. He's saying you are going to live your life chasing after something. You are gonna live your life with something in whatever metaphor you want, the bullseye, the, the, the windshield, your GPS is gonna be locked in on something. You're gonna have a target that you are going after. And he said, people who do not know God spend their life chasing after meeting their needs. And he said, you ought to take on a different perspective. Set your focus on God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and guess what? You're gonna get all the rest too. Because God loves you, he wants to take care of you. 
So you set your focus on his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else comes along. But what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? What does it mean to seek his righteousness? Again, if you fell asleep in class, what's the answer? Context, thank you. Everywhere around this prayer, Jesus unpacks what it looks like to chase after the kingdom and chase after righteousness. So I think for for seeking God's righteousness, you find out how to do it by remembering how this prayer starts. Father in heaven, my prayer is that your name will be cherished, that your name will be treated as sacred. Father in heaven, my prayer is that your kingdom, your reign would come on earth. Father in heaven, my prayer is that your will would be done in my life and the life of those around them. What would it look like if our prayers had that kind of focus? And I'll be honest with you, I am most motivated to pray. The thing that tends to drive me to my knees in desperate prayer are my personal needs and the needs of my family, friends, and loved ones. What Jesus is, I think, pushing us toward is a kind of faith that makes the primary object of our desire this part of the prayer. That's what it looks like to seek God's kingdom is to focus your heart on praying for, asking for, seeking this to happen in your life, in your community, and in the world around you. That's what it looks like to seek God's kingdom. It's actually shaped in our prayer life. What about seeking God's righteousness? Now here, we have to define righteousness a little bit because righteousness kind of has two different meanings that surface in the scriptures. One is, is a more of a legal term to describe your standing before God. It, it often gets translated justification. When God looks on you and says, you are righteous, you are made right with God. But then there's another phrase that's called doing or practicing righteousness. What that means is that means doing the kinds of things that people in God's community do. We might say it this way, my daughter is a Roland. That's who she is. Nothing's ever going to change that. And I also want to teach her to live with a certain kind of value system that our family embraces. So there's her status as a Roland that is unchangeable, but there's also a behavior that I want to instill in her as a Roland. Same kind of dynamic is going on here with righteousness. There's a righteousness that God gives us as a result of faith in Jesus, and then there is a righteousness that we learn to do to reflect that faith. Does that make sense? So here what Jesus is saying is, as people who are children, he's speaking, assuming the context of belief here, we want you to seek God's kingdom and seek a kind of life that reflects God. Look at the kind of phrases that talk about the seeking righteousness in the context here. Matthew 6 and those beatitudes that frame this whole sermon, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. What does it look like to seek righteousness? It looks like to have like a burning desire in your heart that you would live a life that pleases God. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs are the kingdom. People who seek righteousness so much, they are actually willing to suffer personal loss, pain, and harm for the sake of living a life that pleases God. 
He continues on another example in Matthew 5, 20. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom. The standard that we're chasing after is incredibly high. And yet, to counter the potential of a legalism that would try to show off, look at what he says at the beginning of chapter six. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus paints this picture of a kind of lifestyle that he unpacks in more detail throughout the whole Sermon of the Mount that is chasing after living a kind of life that honors and pleases God, that is willing to suffer personal loss, and yet is not motivated by impressing other people. What Jesus is saying here is, I want you to have a perspective shift about your needs. I want your primary motivation to become seeing God glorified and honored as king and your life transformed. Now imagine what that would do to your anxious stewing and worrying. For some reason, like doing the dishes is like a, a sin, like it, it's like my worry spot. Like it, when it, there's something about it that when I start doing the dishes, anxious thoughts just start coming into my mind. It, I, I really think for my own sanctification, I need to stop doing dishes. I'll have that conversation later. But for some reason, in that spot, I remember things to worry about. What would it look like if we redirected our thoughts in those moments to God? What would it look like? God, I want to see your kingdom come in my daughter's school. Oh, Lord, there's this character area that I know I need to improve in. God, would you get to work on my heart? Jesus is saying, redirect the focus of your prayers, the focus of everything you're living for to chasing after that. And guess what will happen? God's gonna take care of you. Now, this is not a quid pro quo, that God will give you as much food as you do righteous deeds. That is not the idea here any more than it is with any other parent. I don't decide whether or not I'm gonna feed my daughter based on how well she's behaved this week. You could, there's a phone number to call if I were doing that. But <laughs> providing for the basic needs of your children is what every parent does out of sheer love for their child. Jesus is saying, if you trust that God your father loves you, trust that he's got that covered. You focus on him and chasing after him. Make him the object of your chasing and your seeking. You see, what I think Jesus is saying here is if you make your focus gaining material things, you risk missing everything. Make your focus chasing God and the kingdom and you get everything. He is reorienting all of our understanding of personal needs around this concept of the kingdom of God coming on earth. Now, this brings out some practical questions to me because when I see a promise of God, when I see God say, your father knows you need these things, I wanna know how come Christians still go hungry. If this is really true, like if I told my child, I love you and I'm gonna take care of you and then I let her go hungry, she would have some reasonable questions to ask, wouldn't she? 
Interestingly, I think when we go through the scriptures with that question, I think at least four answers emerge that we would do well to meditate on. The first one is church failure. You see, one of the primary ways that God addresses the needs of hurting people is through his people. And so a people seeking the kingdom of God will be aware of other people's needs. In fact, John said it this way in his letter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. How many people have starved on this earth because there was not enough food on the earth to feed everyone? I think the implication here is that when the kingdom of God is at work, when God's people seek the kingdom, their eyes begin to be open to people in need. We also read uh, this description in Ephesians. It brings a different uh, perspective to how we even approach our work. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Now, what I, I, I assume that's gonna come out after this, quit stealing and work so that you provide for yourself. That's not the motivation that Paul gives. Quit stealing and must work. Do something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. One reason that people go without is that the church is not doing its job of loving well. And I think we gotta have an honest conversation about what need and wealth and riches looks like. Let me just give you a little statistics. There was a really big uproar several years ago about the 99% and the 1%. Can I teach you about the real 1%? The 1% of riches that controls the world? The standard for poverty in the United States, this is the arbitrary line that says if you make this or less, you are technically in poverty, uh, is $26,500 a year of annual income. By sitting at the poverty line in the United States, you are in the top 2% of the world. An annual income of $50,000 a year for a household puts you in the 1%. The average income in Northwest Arkansas, $42,000. Guys, we are the 1%. Not everyone, I'm not saying that there are not people in here who fall below having basic needs met, but a large, large majority of people in our context, in our community, are the rich and the wealthy on the world standards. So what does that mean for us? I think it means we gotta take a closer look at what needs look like and what generosity looks like. Now, can I tell you when I, I was on the receiving end of this? Um, by the way, 
even people who make an income that puts them in that two and 1%, does that mean you'll never find a situation where you can't pay the bills to meet your basic needs? Not at all. A few years ago, we had a situation where it was just an insane year. We had like three different things in our house break, totaling multiple thousands of dollars. And then they were all legitimate, I, I promise you. We had four emergency room visits within six months, all of them essential. And we got to this point where we were staring down thousands of dollars of bills and we did not have the cash to pay it. And I felt humiliated, I felt shame that I was in this place where I couldn't pay the basic needs of our family. And I was talking to my wife about it and I said, I'm in, I don't want to admit this to anyone because I'm so embarrassed. And she said, Nick, that's a spiritual problem. And so like as accountability in our family, she said, I think you need to share at community tonight where we are. Not to ask for anything, but just to be honest about where our family is so you get over your pride. Really a loving moment for my wife to challenge me there. And then, you know what? And of course, in the loving community we're in, the next day, one of the people in our community group showed up at our house and just said, hey, we wanna pay that last ER bill wrote us a check and walked away. Wouldn't let us argue with them. And in that moment, we had a community come in and help us through a moment where we found ourselves in that place where we couldn't get over the hump. And you know what? A couple of years later, we've been able to be in a different place where we're able to do that for other people. The picture that gets painted here is of a community that does this for each other. A family that helps meet needs. Now, I can imagine some people in here are really jumping to get to number two because number two is real as well. But sometimes individual choices also cause people to go without. And so Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. He's talking about his own behavior while they were there. He said, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work won't eat. Now, in a community of faith, this kind of generosity and accountability have to go together. The hard-nosed accountability without extravagant generosity will crush people in difficult situations. The generosity without accountability creates an unsustainable enabling situation. And in God's wisdom, he gives us both in the church. Side by side. However, I think the scriptures also give us two more reasons to add to the mix. One is persecution. Jesus himself said, there will come times when you will be persecuted. And that's a blessing. That if your focus is the kingdom, there may come time that your love for God and your pursuit of God will cause you to suffer the lack of your basic needs even to the point of death for the sake of the kingdom. And similarly, kingdom mission will take you to that place. Uh, Paul said this when he was describing his motivation to work for the Corinthians. He describes everything he's gone through and in verse five he says, I went through hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger for the sake of the mission. So on the one hand, a healthy community should meet needs. 
And on the other hand, when the kingdom is our focus, some will be called to pursue God to a place where for the sake of the kingdom, even their basic needs are not met. Which brings us back to the point of the whole thing. Make material needs your primary goal, you're in danger of missing everything. Make the kingdom your goal, and you get everything. Which is why I think Paul summarized the way we should pray in what almost reads to me like a commentary on this part of the Lord's Prayer in the book of Philippians chapter 4. He said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. It is our desire that, that we would be transformed into this kind of people, into this kind of community, who are so fixed on your glory, on the holiness of your name, and on your kingdom, that our own entitled rights would be set aside for something bigger. And Lord, we know you love us. So Lord, help us to trust in your goodness. Help us to trust in your grace. And Lord, provide. Give us today the things we need for today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Ponder this verse in your hearts.
Are you more valuable than the birds in the air? Does God love you and care to give you what you need? We have evidence of how much he's willing to give for you. It's his son on a cross. So in the face of our needs and our concerns and our daily worries, can we be reminded by the symbol of bread that pictures a body that was broken? Your father loves you and he knows what you need and he will provide. Let's take and eat. And in his infinite wisdom, our Father knew that the greatest threat to our lives was not lack of food or clothing or shelter, but it was the sin that would separate us from him. So he gave his blood that washed us clean. Take and drink. So now, Mosaic, let's pray this prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, if you would like someone to continue in prayer with you, we invite you to come join us for prayer. Um, in the prayer room to my left, be blessed and have a great week, Mosaic.